0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in East European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, and today we'll be speaking with Francis Toplin about his book, The Hidden Europe, published by Wander Learn Books, in which he chronicles his exploration of Eastern Europe over a 10 year period. Hello, Francis Tampon.
1: How are you doing hello. today? Uh, very good, Hugh. It's good to hear from you. It's good to hear from you, and you're doing well? Uh, yeah, everything's great. I'm uh, here in San Francisco and uh, just doing my book tour. Uh, that's all that's occupying me now, and then uh, preparing to go for a backpacking trip, I hope, uh, in the coming weeks.
0: Oh, that sounds where's where's that trip to? that's not so,
1: Africa already is it or no not Africa yet. I'll be doing uh, just the Sierra Nevada uh, sometime this summer. I'm not sure exactly when but i'll it's coming down the pipe.
0: well very excited very exciting and so uh, uh, you know we're here to talk about your book The Hidden Europe and uh, why don't you just start about uh telling us how you got interested in Eastern Europe to begin with
1: I my father 's French, my mom's from Chile i so because of my French background, I went to a French school in San Francisco for twelve years. I had a, a lot of f- French education. They t- teach in the school uh, kind of an Eastern Europe. Uh, sorry, they teach you about the European history and all that stuff and so I kind of had a good decent amount of knowledge better than the average American about Western Europe but Eastern Europe, because I grew up and when I was a little kid, it was you know the Cold War was going on. I didn't really know too much more about it. It was just the kind of this strange, mysterious land behind the Iron Curtain. And so, even though I had this kind of European education, I didn't really feel I knew all of Europe. I only knew half of Europe. And so, I really want to get to know the other half.
0: Okay. And uh, when did and how did you conceive of writing the book? Did the trips come first, or did the book come as a time
1: you decided you were going to learn that, or how did that work? So I wrote my first book, Hike Your Own Hike, It's Seven Life Lessons from Backpacking Across America. It was when I backpacked the Appalachian Trail, and then later I did the Continental Divide Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail. And, and that was when I kind of realized I want to be a travel writer. And so that was my first book, and I wrote about it. Uh, based on the Appalachian Trail, then, so I said, okay, where's my next trip going to be? It should be somewhere else. I should write a book about that. And so I kind of scanned the globe and I was looking at places I haven't been to. And there's a lot, had been a lot of places I didn't know. But you know, Eastern Europe stood out as this big sore thumb. And like, well, wow, I've been to almost every single country in Western Europe, and, and yet I've been hardly to any countries in Eastern Europe. So that felt like a place. If I could just somehow complete that, I would complete my understanding of of Europe. That was like the missing uh, the missing half of that equation. So once I went to Eastern Europe in 2004. So, sorry, backtrack a little bit. My very first trip was back in 1992. That was my very first trip. Uh, I went to Czech Republic and and to, and to Hungary. But then I went again to like Russia and Ukraine in 1999. But my first true trip, where I visited all 25 Eastern European countries, was back in um, 2004. And I spent five months five months visiting all that. And it was during that trip that I realized I was going to write this book. And I that was my intention throughout. And that's where the idea started.
0: Okay. And uh, so what, do, you know, uh, so you've been to the Czech Republic. And I think you said Hungary as well. Um, and so you that was a little in, bit yeah, in in 92. So right after the, you're more or less in that early period, right after the changes. That's right. Uh, and uh, so uh, as you got ready to do the big trips, so you had some familiarity. What, what did you do to prepare for that uh, uh, you know, what were your sources, or did you uh, just decide to go in blind?
1: I went in blind uh, one of the advantages of going in blind i mean there 's some obvious disadvantages of going mm-hmm. blind, uh, but uh, one of the advantages is that you you 'd come in with no prejudices you 'd come in with no biases i mean or at least very few shall we say um, and so i didn 't uh, I, I wanted that perspective and and in some ways it was it was fascinating. I'll give you a good example of what it kind of turned out to be interesting. You know, for example, when I went into Serbia, I had really no clue because during the whole Serbian uh, wars—not the Serbian wars, but the Yugoslav wars. I pretty much tuned out. The whole conflict was just way too complicated to my brain. You know, I was just hearing all, you know, Bosnian Serbians, Bosnian Serb, and and ethnic cleansing. I had no clue. I heard Slobodan Milosevic. I didn't know if he was the good guy or the bad guy. You know, I just mm-hmm. it was just a complex thing at the time. I was uh, in college at the time, and I just kind of, uh, or I was just coming out of college. Anyway, I just wasn't into that whole conflict. I just didn't feel like following it. It just seemed too complicated. And so as a result, I tuned out. So when I went to Serbia, I had no understanding of this conflict at all. And so Serbians immediately were quite defensive and, you know, trying to defend themselves. And I was like, why? What's the problem? I'm just asking questions. I'm trying to understand. And I had no idea about that. So in some ways, it's good. In some ways, it's bad. Because I didn't come in there kind of with this bias against the Serbs as if they're the evil people. No, I had no Clue: uh, Who is the good guys and the bad guys from the kind of the American eyes of, of the whole conflict? And uh, of course, now I kind of understand. Okay, Serbs were supposed to be the bad guys, but because I came in open minded, I think I approached the problem a lot more uh, objectively. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. No, it, it was it was a complicated. Uh, it was very complicated. It was very hard for a lot of people to grasp. I re- still remember listening to uh, a Serbian scholar trying to present the serbian position i mean i think he was an honorable man but it was a very hard thing to do in the
1: face of what was happening um and when you're in your early 20s and you're not you know never been to the region have no ties in your early 20s you don't really care it's like whatever some you know it's like people trying to find all the conflicts in africa it's like you just throw up your hands and like say okay a bunch of people fighting each other who knows
0: Mm -hmm. so in any case, the, the, by the time you did the book, or decided you were going to write the book, you started this, and that was 2004, and did you, now the book starts in Finland, and you proceed from there. Did you start in Finland then in 2004 and make your way down? Is, is this telling us the story of your travel?
1: Yes, exactly right. I started so the book follows more or less the path roughly how I how I got around in two thousand and four. Now I went back five years later. actually four years later in two thousand five. Sorry, two thousand eight. Sorry, and I spent three years in Eastern Europe visiting, revisiting all those twenty five countries again. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to get a second look at them. I want to, and sometimes a third and a fourth look to all those countries, and. But when I was writing the book, I wanted to roughly follow the path of my original journey in 2004, those first five months that I visited. And then, and then, but what the book is not written in a chronological fashion, although it does follow roughly the path of 2004, because what I do is I break it out into 25 chapters, 25 countries. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, uh, I'm jumping back and forth in time. So for example, when we go to Poland, I don't just talk about my 2004 visit. But I also talk about the 2008 visit and and onward, and the other times when 2009, etc. And so I bring back those the the future. But you're right; the general path of the book more or less mimics my 2004 trip.
0: Okay, so why don't you talk about you know the start out, and you start in Finland, and uh, you know this you know which some people would. Call Eastern Europe, others people would look at you and so I mean, and it has, certainly serves some similarities uh, in terms of national awakening and stuff, but uh, generally, it's not the first. Uh, when you say Eastern Europe, it's not the first country that comes to mind. You started there. What did you see, and how did that shape where you were going?
1: Well, yeah, I went up all the way into the Arctic Circle, and just to that's kind of where the trip kind of begins. I'm up in the Catricon Queros Trail, which is way up uh, by Kusamo, um, or north of Kusamo, really. Um, and I went on a 50 kilometer backpacking trip there, and, or actually more. I think it was 80 something kilometers, a 50 mile trip. That's right, um, and. Then I went south into and explored the rest and and, and Helsinki, but the, you're right. The, the book spends not that much time in Finland because I, like you say, it's kind of in the periphery of Eastern Europe, and of course, most people don't even consider it part of Eastern Europe. And just to say briefly, so people who are listening to this are wondering why is Finland even there. I divide the book. Uh, I divide Eastern Europe kind of geographically, uh, mostly, and so. I don't have an, I, I look at the world as, okay, let's imagine there's no Northern Europe, or let's imagine there's no Southern Europe or Southeastern Europe. Let's just imagine it's just an East West, just like you can take the United States and divide it East and West along the Mississippi. Well, you can take any piece of geography and divide it East and West. And so, if you were to divide Eastern Europe, sorry, Europe into two, Finland is clearly in the East because it's right next to Russia, right above Estonia, and, uh, you know, it's, It couldn't be – it's definitely not in the west part of Europe. Um, So that's why Finland falls in it and that's why Greece falls into Eastern Europe too even though a lot of people wouldn't consider Greece. And so then the question becomes is where is that western border? Where is the the actual border of Eastern Europe? And I just decided to go with the Cold War – border that they, they chose, both for geographic reasons, because roughly it's in the middle, um, and also for historical reasons and, and the fact that communism uh, existed there, there's a common bond, and the fact that there's a lot of mystery regarding this, this whole region. A lot of people don't know the difference between Slovenia and Slovakia, and yet everybody can talk about the differences between Italy and Ireland. Uh, you know, There's a lot more understanding of Western Europe than there is of Eastern Europe, I think, in general, across the world.
0: Sure, of course. Um, now, uh, so you start in Finland now did when you you move then of course to the first country and what we begin to talk of is eastern europe uh more conventionally which would be estonia uh you seem to like that a lot i think and just generally the baltic uh, the uh, baltic states in general
1: yeah i mean the, the baltic states it's it's very i think people there are very peaceful they're um as a result they have it was to me it was fascinating to see their traditions that they uh, kind of keep alive um, they have a group I think I was impressed by how they love to preserve a lot of their food for the winter they kind of keep that tradition alive which was you know unexpected they even celebrate some old pagan rituals you know like the solstice and the you know the winter solstice the summer solstice especially the longest day of the year it's, it's as if those pagan that, uh, traditions still stay alive up in the far north um the, that was uh, fascinating to me. And it was also fascinating because like a, a lot of Americans, you know, the Baltics, uh, you just assume they're all speaking the same language, that they're roughly the same people. And of course, that's completely false. You know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they have their three distinct languages and fairly distinct cultures. And, and so to me, it was just kind of interesting and, and fascinating to try to decode and, and try to understand these, the, how, they, how they get along and, and how do they uh, interact. So, it was uh, it was uh, a place I, I lived in Tallinn for four months, and uh, it was a great uh, during the winter, in fact, and that was uh, a fun experience too.
0: What uh, led you to spend that much time? I mean, you were do You were pl- had you planned to spend four months in Tallinn
1: originally? Well, when I originally met, so I met when I went from Finland to Estonia on my very first trip in two thousand and four. I met a woman named Mayu, Mayu Reisman, and Mayu. Uh, invited me, long story short, it's all explained in the book, but basically, I stayed with her uh, for a couple of weeks uh, in Tallinn, and we stayed in contact over the years. And in fact, we dated, and we, she eventually hiked the Pacific Crest Trail with me, which is a 2,700 mile, uh, about 4,200 kilometer trail on the west coast. It goes from Oregon, Washington, uh, and California goes through all those states. And she and I hiked that together. And so we were together. And so when I came out in 2008, we I stayed with her in Estonia for, uh, for those uh, four months. And although, you know, the sad thing is that eventually we did break up, but... Um, that explains my deep connection with Estonia as well as the Baltic. And, that, uh, and I really did get to understand, I think, Estonian culture very uh, well. And I also got to see – I also made some good friends on the Russian side of Estonia. And so uh, Estonia is about 25% Russian and you have uh, about 30% Russians in Latvia and only 6% Russians in Lithuania. And so it was interesting to see, you know, the lingering influence of Russia, which has been inf- it's, its influence in the Baltic has waxed and waned over the centuries. And uh, nowadays it's, it's kind of slightly waning. Obviously from the Soviet days it's kind of uh, retreating slightly its influence. But it's still certainly there. It's quite, it's quite important.
0: Oh yeah. No, it's, it's not going to go away. It uh,
1: <laughs> happens when you live next door to somebody. Uh, <laughs>
0: And actually, while we're on that uh, point of living next door, I mean, I, one of the themes that I see in your book uh consistently, uh, and it's one that, you know, East European specialists don't talk a lot. I think we're, we're well aware of it, but we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it because we're so used to it, this sort of background noise. But you were very concerned about the degree to which the... Baltic member, uh, don't, you know, member people from various Baltic states don't really know their neighbors very well. Uh, You know, not even, not just the Russian side, which they do feel like they know. And if they're, if they're uh, Estonians or uh, Latvians, they have great uh, animosity. But, uh, but you say even, you know, between Latvia and Lithuania, which are at least nominally uh, part of the same linguistic group.
1: Absolutely right. It's a good observation. I mean, when I wrote this, when I was starting to write this book, or at least right when I, con- when I conceived of it, I kind of imagined uh, that I was going to be writing this for ignorant Americans, which, of course, is you know kind of a redundancy. You know, Americans don't know anything about Eastern Europe. And so then I traveled to Western Europe shortly after Eastern Europe. I took a brief trip uh, around there for a few months. I traveled through Western Europe, and I was talking to people about Eastern Europe. I realized Western Europeans don't know much about Eastern Europe. And finally, when I really stopped and thought about it and talked to more Eastern Europeans, I realized Eastern Europeans don't know anything about Eastern Europe. <laughs> in other words, if you try to find somebody from Bulgaria who's heard about Kaliningrad, most Bulgarians say I've never heard of Kaliningrad. If you ask a Macedonian where's Latvia, they're like oh, I'm not sure. It's somewhere up there in the north. And uh, Slovaks ask them about Moldova. Slovaks don't know much about Moldova. And so I just realized that you know this is. Uh, a region that is uh, that a lot of people don't know. And what I found most fascinating, for example, is that they sometimes didn't even know their neighbors well well enough and that they had a lot of um, what I call Baltic blindness. In the Baltic, there was there's Baltic blindness that, that the Estonians, Latvians, and Lithuanians don't know all that much about each other. They're more likely to have traveled to Thailand than to have traveled to some of their neighboring states. And let's say Romania and Bulgaria, here they're split basically by the Danube River. And they had just one bridge between them. For until recently, Um, so there's one bridge that Stalin forced them to build, the the kind of like the what they call the Friendship Bridge, that goes by uh, Russe. Um, That's it. And uh, the Romans built a bridge (laughs) way back when between over the Danube, right around where Bulgaria and Romania are. That bridge got destroyed and never got rebuilt. So it's not a technological feat to to cross the Danube and yet the Romanians and the Bulgarians for centuries had no bridges only after World War II that they built their first bridge and it was only until just last year that they finally actually this year 2012 where they're finally building the second bridge (laughs) between um, their countries and so it's and yet it's a huge long border and and yet uh, very little interaction between Bulgarians and and Romanians. So, I just found that uh, fascinating and I just uh, was curious to kind of explore that whole topic.
0: Okay. Now, so that's one theme that I saw. Uh, what were some I mean to you I mean, uh what were some of the other themes that uh stand out for you in writing the book?
1: Well, I think that one of the consistent themes that I try to press on is what can we learn from Eastern Europeans? So that's the subtitle of the book, you know, title is the hidden Europe, but subtitle is what can Eastern Europeans teach us? And so one of the themes I'm constantly exploring is what do Eastern Europeans do that are better than the average Americans or or other people in the world? What, what do they excel at? And what, and so at the end of every chapter, again, there's 25 chapters at the end of every chapter, I do a, a simple summary of a few things that, I think were noteworthy and I wanted to kind of highlight. So that's, uh, I guess, another key theme of the book. Mm-hmm.
0: I think I, I, I'm impressed with your, you, you, you stick with that all the way through uh, and it's particularly hard when you're dealing with a place like Belarus uh, and, you know, but you do, you find things and I think sucking it up, as you say, uh, is one of the things uh, given the amount of tragedy that they experienced during World War uh, too, uh, is uh, is certainly a lesson uh, for those who have been
1: more fortunate. Sure. And, and Belarus's ability to jerry-rig all sorts of things, you know, <laughs> that was also kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it,
0: there was a i had my first experience with sort of a handheld coffee filter was an East German one that a friend of mine in West Germany had. Uh, all sorts of uh, jerry rigging and, 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 you know, clever think, uh, solutions to problems, uh, simple problems. I had a great, actually, it was Turkish in Ukraine, a, a Turkish, um, bowl set that you, and also colander that had, I can't remember the properties of it all because it, but it was very well thought out and, uh, useful in many different ways. Um, so you, know, and those are things we do miss sometimes, uh, when we can afford to have many different, uh, specialty products. Um, right. Let's, you know, move south. The other place that you really, and I wonder if this also has to do with romantic intrigue or interest, uh, your other real love in the book comes out to be the Balkans. Sorry, the, uh, you, the bees and the bees are your place. Sorry, uh, the, the, of the Balkans. The Balkans, Balkans yes. Uh, you like the Baltics and the Balkans. Uh, those are the strong points. And you do have a romantic interest there that develops as well. But it's obviously more than that. Why don't you talk yeah. about your interest in the Balkans?
1: Yeah, the Balkans. So uh, after uh, Mayu and I, who's from Estonia, after we broke up, I just started traveling through Eastern Europe, and then I went to Western Europe. And, you know, about two years went by or something like that. And this is
0: still 2004?
1: So no. Uh, oh, I met Mayu in 2004, and uh, we, but we broke up in 2009 mm-hmm. in January. So uh, And not January, February. And so then I traveled, and it was at the very end of 2010 So uh, that I met Ana Maria Mishmash. Uh, She is a Slovenian, and she and I stayed together for about 18 months. And so she kind of – I was not intending to spend so much time in uh, Slovenia and Croatia, but in the end, uh, my relationship with her, uh, that's what kept me there. Um, And uh, so – and then, of course, I – But you're right, it's not so much the romantic interest that kind of got me interested in the Balkans. What got me interested in the Balkans is that it's so inscrutable, it's so perplexing, it's so uh, difficult to understand. It's just a fascinating place. And so it felt like a jigsaw puzzle that I need to kind of assemble and try to decode. And so that's what it was, uh, what was the big draw for me. So I could try to understand, you know, what does it mean to be from Kosovo and what about Macedonia and what about Greece's Macedonia and what about the Albanians and what about the Albanians in Kosovo and what about uh, Bosnians and they have Bosnian Croatians and Bosnian uh, Serbians, (laughs) all these different ethnic groups and religions and how important is religion in these places. And so, you know, it was just a fascinating place to try to understand versus a lot of rest of Eastern Europe is a lot easier to figure out. Uh, the Balkans, though, is a jigsaw puzzle, and that 's what my and I felt that that was the strongest point of my book is to try to explain that in a, a simple yet profound way to people so that they could kind of understand it uh, for people who have never been there. I wrote it it's like I wish somebody had told me this before I had went so I could really get this area
0: mm-hmm. now uh, no and I, I certainly do get at some of the, the stereotypes, the different groups have each other. And, and I and I will say this, I think you do uh, a good job with trying um understanding, you know, what was going on from the Serbian perspective, uh in addition to, you know, the other perspectives. And you are not not to say that you make light of what happened in Sarajevo and stuff or anything like that. You, you, a, it does provide you with the multifaceted side of what was going on. Um I was wondering, though, you know, as you talk about this, I notice in the north, when you're in the Baltics, and even when you're in Poland or the Czech Republic or Slovakia, you uh take the national story you're given pretty much as given to you. When you get down to Hungary... Uh, you just can't take the discussion of Trianon anymore. You, you, uh, which, uh, and for those of you who are new to Eastern Europe, uh, and the the Treaty of Trianon is the, that part of the Versailles, the complex of Versailles treaties that was, that, uh, reshaped Hungary, took, uh, created the successor states of the Hungarian half of the Austrian Empire. Uh, you And you really begin to – you lay into that myth. And then when you get down to Yugoslavia, you do the same thing again. You really challenge a lot of the myths. I'm wondering uh, what led you into that
1: uh, reevaluation? That's a really perceptive comment. I think that you're absolutely right that I – was, I guess, maybe gentler to, to at the beginning of the book with regard to some... I mean, right from the Estonian part, I do challenge the Estonians with how they view the Russian occupation and certain things and the whole controversy regarding the bronze soldier. And I do sharp, uh, sharply defend some of the Russian perspective uh, in the Baltic. Uh, just as much as I criticize the the, the Soviet uh, regime. Uh, and I so, I do challenge to some extent, but you're right. I definitely step it up once I get into Hungary and into the Balkans and beyond, actually. Uh, I even talk about it to some extent in Romania. Um, but you're right. In the Balkans, I, I, I really step it up. I think there's two reasons for that. I mean, the, the biggest reason is that I felt that those myths were just more prevalent. They were more deeply rooted. They came, they were more vociferous. They, talked about it, uh, just, it, it came up in casual conversation fairly much. And it was just, and it was also way off base when I met Polish people, for example, um, I did, I felt that their disconnect from reality was very small compared to the disconnect from what I thought was reality. If you will, from what I studied, um, was greater when you went into the Balkans. And I think there's a good reason for that. When you're in war, there's a lot of propaganda, and it takes sometimes a generation for that propaganda to subside and for some sort of the truth to kind of slowly come out. And so I think in the Balkans, it's taken, it's still kind of the residue of the 20 years ago, the, the fighting that went on there. And so some of the, all of these myths are alive versus when you go into the Baltic or, or you go into Poland or Slovakia. People, I think, that time has passed and they've had time to kind of analyze themselves a little bit more realistically, and so their myths are not as deep. Now, it brings up the hungry question, why is hungry, is that I think they suppressed. I just was talking to a Hungarian last night, and uh, she was saying, I think the problem is that we weren't able to discuss it, and now we're talking about it more. And so it's something that was kind of repressed for uh, a treaty that happened 90 years ago they're talking about today, the Treaty of Triana.
0: And i just wondering, did you talk to Poles about Ukraine and Western Ukraine much sure or about Poles and Lithuania? I think you mentioned Polish, something about Poles and Lithuania, but I don't
1: remember uh now yes you're right sure. I did I did talk about the tension between Lithuania and Poland and at the time when I was writing the book it wasn't as strong as it is now in 2012 where they have their whole naming dispute etc um, and how do you write your name in <laughs> Lithuania um, it's uh, that issue hadn't hit as hard when I was writing the book um, but, you're, but I do mention the conflict I do not talk too much about the Polish-Ukrainian tensions um, it's I do mention it a bit in the fact that in Lviv, in Ukraine, you know, it used to be a very Polish town and that a lot of Polish graves were desecrated and kind of uh, graf- put uh, graffiti were, p- were put on it by the Ukrainians after World War II, kind of indicating that there was some bad blood between the Poles and the Ukrainians. But aside from that, uh, I don't go too much into the contemporary. Now, part of that is I didn't feel it as much. Part of it is that maybe I didn't ask enough questions regarding that question. Uh, but also, it could just be that I don't think it's as severe, the tensions between them versus which exists in the Balkans. Well, I, the reason I ask is that on
0: one level, and if you've read uh, Tim Snyder's book, The Reconstruction of Nations, uh, one of the things, you know his story is about is uh, the reconciliation that took place uh, at the state level, uh, and that can, continued on uh, past the, when he was writing that book, uh, to the establishment of the new, uh, the uh, renovation of the Polish um, uh, memorial to the, uh, to the Polish-Ukrainian conflict uh, in 1918, over this primarily over the city of uh, what the Poles called the wolf I and mean, it's called. Lviv. And yet, at the same time, um, you know, when I was in Krakow in 2000, uh, there in graffiti was written in Polish, was Lviv is always a Polish city. And if you scratch beneath the surface, you know, there's been a whole, uh, controversy that continues on, uh, to a certain extent with the, in, uh, the border city of Helm. Uh, and uh, Przemysl more Przemysl uh, there uh, about that. And so uh, I think if, if one of if you know where to look. But of course, you were still new, and you were coming down. Poland is, I think, what the fourth city, uh, fourth uh, place you visit. And you know, since you did come in blind, you were not necessarily prepared to think. Oh, I know, I'm here by the time. And you do hear Trianon talking in Hungary, so you're asking the questions you need to know. But I'm wondering now, if you were to go back, now, and I'm not criticizing what you said about the Russians in, in Estonia and Latvia, but I'm thinking, would you uh, look back at the national myths a bit more critically in, the, uh, in Estonia or in the, the uh, northern regions more now, having that experience?
1: Uh yeah I would certainly I mean I always try to keep my eye open for it and although I did st- you have to I, I did go back to all these countries so I first saw them in 2004 and I did go back in 2009 2010 to, up to 2011 I saw a lot of these countries again and so I was able to say hey wait a second can I stop there and, and let me talk about some of your your national myths a little bit more or not you know your national history and so just one of the things about the book is that I try throughout to try to capture what I call the people's history in other words what's in the people's minds and, and how they, they view their history and then try to compare that to as objective as sources of I can find, which I realize that they may be biased as well, but as trying to understand you know kind of another perspective and try to get both sides of the issue and try to share that with readers so that people can understand how people view themselves, how these nations view themselves, and so I would go back and certainly revisit that uh, those those issues in those in those countries. Um, and I think the more time you spend in any country, you, you start learning a little bit more about it. Um, so yeah, it, it certainly would be it w- would be fun uh, to to spend more time in the Baltic and and get a little bit more deeper with regard to those issues.
0: Well, what about also? I mean, also sort of central this classic Central Europe. I say Habsburg Central sure. Europe. I mean, yeah. you, know, you also, you know, What is? I mean, you definitely noticed that. I mean, I you you call you know the, the talk about the polish character of Lemberg, i would say it's as much an austrian character as it is you know they say a broader Habsburg, not in, in narrowly defined german uh you know the yes the center of the, the old center of the city is polish pre pre 1772 but you know much of the city and including the opera house you know right there in the center is you know that could have been plunked down pretty much in any Hobbsburg city or may, arguably any European city uh, in the late 19th century um, and it you know happened to be in Lviv uh, in although if you go inside you would notice uh, certain things that are definitely references to the local area. But uh, moving down back you know into the Balkans again, um, you know you did include Greece and I like that. Um, We do all too often forget about uh, the fact that however uh, we look back and Greece is the cradle of democratic civilization as we understand it – it is very. It's, a, its story is as much an East European story as anybody else's. In many ways, I mean, even there, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the uh, I believe the Greek national anthem is something we will be slaves no more. Isn't that far off of uh, the Polish line? Polish is not has not yet perished, or the Ukrainian one. The Ukraine is uh, is not yet dead, right? Uh, you know, same kind of sympathies, uh, and sense of a bit more vict- victorious in the Greek Greek sense, um, but uh, you know, talk about the experience in Greece and the uh, and, and your react and that Macedonia issue from your perspective, and you did uh, that is a, one of the uh, lingering questions, as you say, in the book.
1: Yeah, I mean that whole issue of like, like you say that Greece. Has this kind of you know they they were not were not slaves any longer. I mean they were basically occupied or under some sort of empire of some sort for uh, for a lo- for a long time. Greece, of course, we think of ancient Greece, but for basically ninety percent of the last two thousand years, they weren't even on the the map. It was either the Byzantine Empire or they they were either under the Turkish uh, or the Ottoman Empire. Um, they didn't become an independent country until uh, eighteen twenty nine. And so that was the the first time that they kind of got their independence back again. And so, uh, there the influence that Eastern Europeans, uh, other you know, the surrounding, especially the Turkish uh, people, have had on Greece is, is is pretty significant. And and we sometimes forget that after the Cold War, uh, sorry, right at the end of World War II, you know, there's a lot of communists in Greece who were were getting somewhat support by Stalin. Uh, and they, Stalin was kind of wanting it to be in the Eastern Bloc. And it was only after some negotiations with the Western powers that Stalin kind of relented and say, fine, you guys can have it. And I'm going to tell my communist supporters to kind of back off. And, and eventually it fell into uh, NATO. But it was pretty close. I mean, it could have easily fallen into the communist bloc. And that, that, it would have been quite different uh, quite different history had that happened
0: yeah no it it would have been of course you know the, it did ultimately fall back to the percentage agreement uh the the famous Churchill agreement that was made at uh uh at uh Yalta, uh which uh, takes us back i want you know from Greece going up the final part of your trip you know is Bulgaria well you actually you you touch into Turkey, which is kind of interesting uh many people would not consider. Turkey, again, part of Eastern Europe, although uh, geographically its most Western part is in Europe, as classically defined. Right.
1: And you also have the fact that Istanbul, being one of the third uh, biggest countries and biggest cities in the world with a population of 13 million, most, about 70% of that 13 million people live on the western, i.e. the European side of Istanbul. So that's you know almost 10 million Turks living in basically Europe, uh, the Turkish part of Europe. And 10 million, well, that's bigger than – Bulgaria, It's bigger than Serbia. That's bigger than Slovenia and Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. It's bigger than a lot of Eastern European countries. And uh, yet that's just a little tiny piece of, of Turkey. Um, but it is in Western Europe. And so – and the fact that there's uh, – sorry, in Eastern Europe. The, the, the fact that uh, they're part of NATO, the fact that they're being cons- considered a potential candidate for the European Union, all these things indicate, you know, I need to talk about Turkey, not too much. I only spend, it's the shortest chapter in the book, uh, because I want to focus on Turkey for a future book, what I call my, my fourth book, which will be on the Middle East. But I did want to just briefly touch it because they have a, uh, they definitely have an influence in European affairs and Eastern European affairs.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. As I mentioned before the, uh, this plastic, uh, colander and, um, uh, and, uh bowl set that I was so proud of, you know, that was traded. You I bought that in Lviv, but it was Turkish, as well, as many plastic products and many of the jeans and stuff that were sold at that time were also coming from Turkey. Um, you know, as we you mentioned this, and I found that fascinating. That was not a fact that I knew about the bridge, the, the lack of bridges between Romania and uh, Bulgaria. And you would have thought that the, you know, if if the uh, Ottoman Empire can spend as much time building bridges in um, uh, in what we now call Bosnia, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and such. Why they wouldn't be building bridges against uh, along the Danube is a bit striking.
1: I mean, you're talking about the Ottomans, yeah. I, mean, I think my guess is that maybe the Ottoman penetration was never as deep and profound as let's say it was in the Balkans, and so i mean i I realize the Balkan border for some people it's the Danube River, but I think it, that was probably just the edge of their empire, and so they just never were there long enough to, to invest in it. but it raises a good question like why didn't all the other you know the uh, yeah, for people quite that a came long time
0: go- i mean Bulgaria yeah. is a was i mean Bulgaria is definitely part of the Balkans uh and it's you know, but they and they had con- con- considerable control over uh, Romania, although a
1: lot of that time with the you know, sort of vassal local leaders. Um, That's a good question. I mean, the Romans built the Trajan Bridge in 105 AD, <laughs> <laughs> so, and then for the next 1900 years. There was no, you know, no, you know, bridges that were built between the Romania and Bulgaria. It's just incredible. I mean, and yet it's not a technical, like I was mentioning before, it's not a technical issue. Uh, Novi Sad uh, in Serbia has three bridges across the Danube. Budapest has nine bridges across the Danube. Vienna, just the town of Vienna has 21 bridges. And yet in the last 19 centuries, Romania and Bulgaria despite this shared border that's going for hundreds of kilometers, have just one bridge between them. (laughs) It's incredible.
0: Yeah, and of course, I suspect the Black Sea has something to do with that. Uh, Ah, In that...
1: uh, There's a way around it, if you will?
0: Well, yeah, that, you know, Bulgarians or, you know, Turkish uh, or Ottoman officials wanting to... Um, get to Romania or such. We're going to take a boat and just get off. They weren't going to march through Bulgaria, the mountains of Bulgaria, to get up to Romania. Uh, right. That I mean, I think that plays a role as well. Right. Uh, but, I think it's a fascinating question. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sure that, you know, if we got out Maestajanovic or something and uh, read that a bit more carefully, we'd probably have a better clue of it. But, um... I was, you know, moving up, you move the last part of the book, of course, you dealt with Belarus early on in the book. You come back into, sort of move back into East Slav territory. Uh, You talk about Moldova as well. uh, And it's
1: sort of,
0: you didn't hear a lot about, as I understood it, you didn't hear a lot of people saying they wanted to be part of Romania.
1: Yeah, um, it's, that that was fascinating to me because the, the cultural and linguistic difference between Moldovans and Romanians is relatively small. They have, you know, a few years ago, I think it was in uh, 2003, they had a Moldovan Romanian dictionary, which of course is, is is almost as silly as having a a New York Connecticut dictionary or something. Like that. It's just they're basically so similar the two languages that why would you do that? Um, but and yet in a survey, I think it was in uh, two thousand nine, uh, the almost half of Moldovans thought that the Romanian and Moldovan identities were either different or entirely different. Only one in four thought that they were the same or very similar. So. That's how they felt in just 2009. So there's definitely, uh, I was kind of surprised that Moldovans didn't kind of have this desire to reunite. But I guess you can see the same thing in Slovakia. Uh, the Slovaks don't seem to have a huge desire to get together with uh, the Czech Republic uh, because they feel, you know, we're different enough. But, you know, from an outside observer, you kind of look at these two cultures and they're, you know, you guys are similar enough that you could kind of reunite and, and, and you guys should probably be able to get along. There's certainly countries that have more disparate ethnic groups that do get along and, and do work uh, together in the same country. And you guys are, are a lot closer together than other countries. And yet, uh, there's no, they want to keep their independence, they want to stay independent. That's the way it goes.
0: It was, yeah, it was, it made a lot of sense around 19, in the late 80s during the Glasnost period. Because, I mean, wh- wh- which, were you, which would you prefer, Gorbachev or Ceaușescu? Uh, right. But, you know, that's part of the story. I mean, you know, we can look very close to our own border here. And um, Canadians made a very clear decision uh, in the, you know, a- after the Uh, American Civil War that they wanted to be darn sure that they protected themselves from being uh, part of the United States and uh, that survived Uh, so it's you know and today in Austria and you know despite you know some events in the 20th century Austrians today um, feel generally you know that they have a distinct character from being German. I mean there is nothing that says language by itself determines an identity
1: Um, Very, very well said
0: and, uh, so we've, you know, now, you know, you moved to Ukraine and you said you visited the first in 1999. I think you were in, uh, Kiev the first time, right? And?
1: Yeah, Kiev and I also went to, um, Odessa. The Odessa as well as the Crimea. Mm-hmm. And did you, uh. In
0: 1999,
1: that was my, my first visit I hit those three regions.
0: Right, which are, uh, I mean, they're very different places. Uh, I mean, Odessa and uh, and Crimea have something more in common. Probably, you could argue both are highly Russophile or R- Russian oriented uh, historically. Uh, the uh, Crimea more so uh, than Odessa. Uh, and I noticed you called Od- Odessa the uh, the party
1: town. I was struck by that. Uh, <laughs>
0: did you re- wha- did you revisit it again?
1: Uh, I did vi- revisit it again, and uh, I saw it again in 2004, and I saw it again in 2000 2000- – actually, I'm not sure if I – I don't think I saw it in 2009. But you know, it's interesting. I was just watching yesterday on a German television channel, which happens to be uh, – they happen to have an English segment there, so I could actually understand it. Um, they had a whole hour-long program on Odessa, and it was interesting. Toward the end of the program, they talked about how the whole place becomes a big party town, <laughs> especially in the summer. It is uh, – they definitely can be quite rambunctious, and it's a place – for a lot of uh, young people to, to g- gather in the summer, it's, and that's what they love to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, what I liked about when I was living in Ukraine, I enjoyed the fact that I was able to get Georgian wine, that there was a place there, and I bought a case of Georgian wine, which I brought up with me back to, to Lviv for the second year. I mean, it was it was not literally a case, because you couldn't buy it in cases, but that's what I did. Um as far as, you know, one of the things I'm interested about Ukraine,
1: and you touched on it a little bit, but did you get a sense of the regionalism in Ukraine? I did. Uh, you definitely see, I mean, in the, in the very simplistic regional uh, division, which is fairly obvious, actually, is that Western Ukraine is different from the rest of, of, of Ukraine. <clears throat> so Western Ukraine, centered around Lviv, is where you would call kind of the true Ukraine, you know, Ethnic and linguistic um, culture lies, and the rest of Ukraine uh, is either split or very uh, Russian oriented. And so, yeah, I would I definitely sense that. Uh, the, the first time it slapped me across the face was when I met some Ukrainians in Lviv, and I said "spasiba," which means "thank you" in Russian, and they say, "No, you shouldn't say that." I was like, "Well." what's wrong with that? It's how you say, thank you. And they said, no, no, you say, thank you. And I was like, huh, what's that? And they're like, that's thank you in Ukrainian. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And, uh, so, uh, instead of privet they say, privit. you know, just little types of, uh, changes. And, and, but some of them were more drastic, the, the different words that they use. Um,
0: actually you know possible um, is is acceptable uh in Ukrainian as well uh but uh yeah it depends on what part you're from and uh which of course is actually i believe cognate to our thank you um i think in my my sense of that is that's an actual cognate uh to thank you and danke the german word yeah uh, and of course not not to mention the polish word which is definitely uh related um yeah, there's that difference. Did you, uh, you know, and you mentioned in, in Crimea, uh, the, their strong, intensity, sort of Russian flavor. Uh, did you? What did you sense in Kiev?
1: Kiev, I felt was pretty um, divided and multi-ethnic, uh, multi-group. Uh, you have some people who who were, they'll say. Uh, just looking at some of the polls, I thought was kind of interesting uh, in Kiev. Uh, you have. Uh, a lot of people who say you know, we are Ukrainian but if you, uh, and I and I agree with what you said earlier, you know, d- linguistics is not everything in determining uh, your ethnic uh, thing, but it was still uh, interesting to see that a lot of people in uh, Kiev just speak Russian. I mean, that is that is the kind of default language that you use uh, in everyday work life and in the streets and that kind of stuff. And, you know, some people I think they took a survey, it was in uh, 2009, and 75% of the Kiev population said that Ukrainian was their native language. Uh, but when they asked, well, what do you use in everyday life, half of them said mostly Russian and uh, and only about 20% said mostly or exclusively ex- Ukrainian. So Ukrainian uh, language is definitely – you know, in the back burner in Kyiv, uh, according to this 2003 uh, survey. And it seemed that way on the streets, too. I felt like I, I was hearing more Russian. Not that I'm a f- uh, fluent in either one of these languages, but it, it, it seemed that uh, the Russian language was more dominant.
0: Yeah, well, I think by, I think it was 2004 that they instituted the policy where things had to be, everything on TV had to be in Ukrainian or with Ukrainian subtitles. But. Good uh, point, yeah. It, that's it, a good... So, it, you know, if it, the 2003 survey is not necessarily what I'd go by, which is not to say that I think, I think you're right. I mean, this is one of the problems you know, that is a lingering issue in Ukraine, and from my perspective, is that they don't, uh, that Russian has historically, for most people, not Western Ukraine, been the language through which New ideas reach them. And so it has a built-in advantage. Uh, you know, in, in Western Ukraine, the story is somewhat different. Um, but, uh, you know, there, and, and that, that shapes things. I mean, it, it is, uh, if, you're, if you're used to associating Ukrainian with peasants, ignorant peasants, who don't know anything, and you're off to the university, you want to show your progressives, you learn Russian, and you use Russian, and there you go. Uh, although, of course, at this point, Ukrainian is using the universities. Um, now, uh, let's finish up uh, the tour with Russia and your impressions of Russia before we talk a little uh, bit uh, in conclusion.
1: Russia, I mean, it's the biggest country on the planet by far, and uh, the, I think what a lot of, you know... Americans sometimes have dismissed Russia nowadays, and and even uh, in the UK, uh, I've read you know some analysts who kind of put it like it's over that the empire's done, and that's hard for I think Russians to take. Uh, Part of it is, is. is, there's a little bit of truth to that, you know. If you look at the a GDP, a percentage of GDP, its influence on the world economy is not as big as before. But it's very. But on the other hand, we shouldn't dismiss it at all. I mean, it is not just the biggest country in the world, but it has a, a huge uh, energy reserves, and and it still geopolitically uh, spans uh, quite a big piece. And so, uh, I think I sensed a, a certain sense of, of of pride that still exists. In, in russia that 's kind of surged uh, after Putin took over in roughly t- the year two thousand that now the feelings of Putin have kind of waxed and waned recently, but in general, uh, when you compare it to the time of Yeltsin in the 1990s I think certainly the the pride and the confidence of Russia is overall back and I'd, although I do sense that most of it is tied to the price of oil and gas. If uh, the price of oil and gas are doing well, then Russia is doing well. Otherwise, it's uh, it's doing poorly. It's still pretty much a one-trick pony economy, and they are struggling to try to f- diversify. Uh, but uh, that's a long and slow process.
0: Okay. Uh, now, I want to talk a bit about, you know, you. I know you started, you said you went in as kind of blank slate to learn. Along the way, though, it's very clear you've read certain books. Uh, I'm, pretty sh- uh, you men- I'm pretty sure you mentioned Tudorov's book on the Balkan, on um, the Imagining the Balkans. Uh, you definitely mentioned Stephen Kotkin's book, uh, which you're, so you're sort of to, uh, alluding to as well uh, just now, and as much as Ca- Ca- well, Kotkin's big point uh, in his book about the... Um, Armageddon Averted. I think it's the Armageddon Averted book. Is that uh, uh, that it was the oil prices uh, that was propping up the Soviet Union what ultimately caused them to collapse, uh, the state to collapse in the in the eighties. Um, what other? You know, once you started the process of writing, you knew you were going to write the book. You'd done your field work, as it were what did you you know where did you go for information you mentioned uh we we're talking you know, objective you know at least reasonably objective sources uh, how did you seek them out
1: that's a good question i mean i uh i was luckily friends with a slovenian uh his name is nates and he uh, spoke excellent, perfect English, like a lot of uh, a lot of Slovenians speak excellent English. And he reads a lot of uh, English books. And so he had a collection. And another friend of mine, Tamara. In Slovenia, also had a huge collection of of books, so it was interesting uh, that these Slovenians had these uh, great, uh, large amount of books. And I also got to meet some uh, Slovenian scholars who had, you know, written books in Slovenian. But I had Nate's help me with the translation, so I could get all sorts of statistics about Yugoslavia. You know, one of the historians uh, there. So um, I started. Uh, reading To me, I spent, I would say, most of my academic, quote-unquote, research on this, on this book focused on the Balkans. And the reason for that is I felt that was a place where I was getting the most amount of conflicting information. Uh, there was no other part of Eastern Europe where I would talk to one person and get one fact and then talk to another person and say the exact opposite. And that happened time and time again uh, where I was just completely confused. I didn't know who to believe, what to believe. And so I felt that I needed to spend most of my time researching uh, things on, uh, and, and reading as many books I, as I could about uh, Yugoslavia and the whole Balkans. And so that's, that's where I focused my energy. And oh, I would say one more thing. I'd also mention about the, the Treaty of Trianon. So I want to try to understand academic, because I heard kind of like the guy on the street, how they see the Treaty of Trianon. But I want to see how Hungarians defended the Treaty of Trianon. So I would read some books written by Hungarians about it, but also try to read other books as well to see both sides of the fence. And of course, you know, there's Wikipedia, which offers uh, some good links to other sources. And, and you can kind of follow the wiki links uh, for, uh, for even more information if you feel like it. What books
0: in particular do you think shaped your thinking as you, you, know, as you
1: were reviewing things? Any particular books that stand out? You know, I uh, Malcolm's book on the Noel Malcolm's book on Kosovo stand out, even though I felt it was slight, slightly biased against the Serbs. Um, if if, you, if a Serbian was listening to this, they would say completely biased against the Serbs. Um, but uh, I thought it was, I, it stood out for me because it was really interesting how he approached the whole problem. Again, I don't agree with all of his conclusions, and I and uh, and I kind of argue against but to me it was good John Lamp who writes Yugoslavia as history twice there was a country he wrote that book I thought that that was a, an, a pretty objective overview of of everything um, uh, Laura Cyberg and Alan Little's book called Yugoslavia Death of the Nation which by the way you can see for free the whole uh, PBS series on if you go to um, video.google.com and you type in the death of a nation or yugoslavia death of a nation you'll see the whole series for free and it's uh, several hours um but you can watch it on uh on your computer for free and it's based on the book again i thought that that was a a a pretty decent analysis although again kind of anti-serbs i found that in general a lot of the western books were had just either slight or sometimes very big Serbian bias against, you know, against the Serbians. And, uh, I, I felt that I detected that and it just didn't seem So I would try to read Serbian perspective. I would read their, their, their famous memorandum, which was written, which was kind of like the Serbian perspective of, of this whole issue. And I felt that oh, I was completely on the other side of the fence. There was bias on their side. So I tried as much as I could to try to kind of, uh, balance these two. Okay.
0: Well, it has been a pleasure chatting with you today, Francis, and uh, what is your, I mean, I mentioned the beginning of a trip to Africa, and as I understand it from the back of this book, uh, that uh, your next planned travel book is going to focus on Africa. That's right. Yeah, and so, go ahead. Yeah, and so, yeah, tell us a bit about
1: that project. you. Yeah, heard. so in... At the very beginning of 2013, I plan to embark on a three-year trip to every single country in Africa, 54 countries in Africa. So, Eastern Europe, I spent three over three years in 25 countries. So now I'm going to spend over three years in 54 countries. So I'm going to obviously have to pick up a pace, and you can e- fit Eastern Europe into. Africa at least five, you know, five, if not ten times. So it's a much bigger region to cover. So I'm going to have to go at a faster pace, which is unfortunate, but on the other hand, I kind of want to see the rest of the world too, so I don't want to spend 30 years in Africa. So, And I want to do a similar book, as I did with The Hidden Europe, uh, because I think that the understanding between uh Burkina Faso and Togo is very small i don't know the difference do you uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and the differences between Algeria and uh i don't know Libya you know the two neighboring states i'm not i mean i know the french influence in Al- in algeria but you know aside from that i really don't know too much beyond that and and on and on i mean every there's all sorts of stuff in africa and of course we have so many stereotypes about africa and i want to try to figure out how much truth is that uh, how much truth is there behind some of these stereotypes that we have as westerners regarding africa and of course the stereotypes that exist between themselves and to understand the people as best as i can understand the language and understand the food the history the culture and do the same uh, basic analysis for the african continent so that's my next project and i hope to write that book probably in 2016, maybe 2017, who knows, you know, everything takes longer than you think. So that's my big, uh, my, next, my big next project. Oh
0: well, well, it sounds very interesting, and we'll look forward to it. I can't say, given the, uh, the focus of this particular, um, this particular podcast series, that we'll be inviting you back for that, uh, <laughs> but uh, it is,
1: uh, we'll look forward to seeing that. You well, will invite me if Eastern Europe invades Africa.
0: <laughs> yes, oh, for a certain, for a certain. Yeah. Although, you know, there is a thing, there, there's a little connection. The uh, There was a Austrian uh, currency that was used in uh, with Marie Therese's head on it. And they continued, for some reason, they continued to mint it later. And it was being used in Africa. There's a, there was a Several years ago I read a piece on this on the web about this It was a, a review of a book i believe uh that had come it was view, reviewed in H. Africa and then made its way for, re- for reasons to the hopsburg one that i was uh, list that i was inter- uh, i was uh editing at the time so um, you know there's there are connections believe it or not and of course the greatest documenter of Uh, of imperialism, and certainly the greatest, the great historian of imperialism, literary writer of imperialism in many ways, is uh, Joseph Conrad, who, of course, is Polish. Uh, So there's that there. Uh, It's been a pleasure, and uh, thank you very much, and we'll talk again sometime, Francis.
1: Great. And uh, just one last thing. I just encourage those who uh, want to know a little bit more and read a sample of the book that they should go to thehiddeneurope.com. So don't forget the T-H, the, the part of it, thehiddeneurope.com. And uh, they can get a free sample of the book and uh, download it and check it out. Great. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to New Books in East European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo wishing you the best until next time.